this is Jan Swift, and you're listening to Discover Lafayette, a podcast dedicated to the people and rich culture of Lafayette, the gateway to South Louisiana. Our taping is made possible with the support of Raider, a hands-on IT service provider that integrates all of your needs for advanced technical support, effective communication options, and cybersecurity. Raider's motto is, you just want it to work. We understand. Please visit RaiderSolutions.com for more information. The generosity of Oxner Lafayette General also makes this podcast possible. As Acadiana's largest regional health system, including two teaching hospitals and the region's only level two trauma center with more than 5,500 employees, Oxner Lafayette General strives to put patients first and make caring their top priority. In continuous efforts to reach more patients, Oxner Lafayette General provides services throughout Acadiana and facilitates telemedicine throughout the state, making healthcare more accessible for everyone. For more information, visit OxnerLG.org. We're proud to welcome our newest sponsor, Home Bank, where you'll not only find trusted financial advisors, but neighbors who will help you stay ahead of identity thieves. Home Bank encourages you to limit the use of paper checks, which contain your personal or business information, along with your bank account number. When possible, choose to pay with cash, debit, or credit cards, or with your phone's mobile wallet. Learn more at home24bank.com. Our guest today is Don Washington, a partner in the Jones Walker Law Firm, a national law firm with 13 offices and over 350 lawyers. Based out of their Lafayette office, Don specializes in corporate compliance and white-collar defense. He recently returned to Jones Walker after serving as the director of the U.S. Marshal Service. Appointed by President Donald Trump, he served from 2019 to 2021. During his service, he oversaw nearly 5,500 U.S. Marshals, Deputy Marshals, criminal investigators, detention enforcement officers, and admin staff. Many of you may also remember that Don was appointed by President George W. Bush to serve as U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Louisiana. From 2001 to early 2010, he led federal investigations and trial teams to prosecute cases involving criminal and civil violations of federal law. A graduate of the U.S. Military Academy, Don served in the Army and Army Reserve before he joined the private sector. He worked as an engineer with Conoco while attending and then graduating from the South Texas College of Law in Houston. Don Washington, I've been waiting for this. You've been traveling a lot, and I've been waiting to get you on the show. Welcome to Discover Lafayette. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for that introduction. Those are very kind words. I don't even recognize who that person is. I wondered about that. Um, I wanted you to share yourself today. We all know you as a public figure, but there's always so much more to that. There's the person, the family, the friends that inspire a life well-lived. Can you start out by telling us about your growing up. I know you're from Sulphur Springs and how you ended up where you are today. Sure. As I said, I guess last week, I was born Texan but lived Louisianian. <laughs> uh, I, I was born and raised in East Texas, a small town of Sulphur Springs. There was probably no more than 20,000 people in that town at any given time. It's now a kind of a Norman Rockwell type town. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in my day, when I was growing up, it was pretty much a dairy county. And so uh, we were a, um, um, you know, livestock, kind of a country uh, type family. I was a country boy. I, in high school, I was a member of the Future Formers of America you and were? all of that. Absolutely. What I, kind of uh, animals? Uh, ca- cattle is what I, what I raised. But uh, I was telling some folks the other day, even my wife doesn't know some of these things. Uh, I spent uh, a couple of uh, uh, weekends at the Houston Livestock and Livestock Show and Rodeo, which is going on now in Houston. And back in those days, I judged livestock, you know, cattle, um, uh, hogs, uh, sheep, uh, et cetera. And, and so that was sort of where I was headed. I was pretty mm-hmm. good in school, though, in things like math and science. They were by far my favorites. And so there came a time when I had to decide what I was going to do next in terms of my college education and career and all of that. You know, I was African-American in East Texas, and, um, you know, the expectation was that I would go to college. I was, would be 
really the second generation in my family, but uh, education had skipped my father, but my grandfather was college educated. And so I was encouraged uh, to Mm -hmm. kind of reach for the stars. So I was going to go to Texas. Um, UT? Um, uh, no, no, not UT. Um, 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 I was going to go to, and be a Red Raider. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, instead, um, uh, things changed. I was sitting in a math class my senior year, and one of my classmates had announced very proudly that he was going to um, go to the Naval Academy. So he had already made his application and all of that. And I said, well, if he's going to do that, I'm mm-hmm. going to do something. So I just announced very proudly that, well, I'm <laughs> going to apply to West Point. Gosh. And I did. And uh, I got in and he did not. Oh, and, uh, Don. Yeah, it was still, that, those were the days, as they say. But your family mm-hmm. must have been just over the top. Uh, my father was over the top. Grandfather was over the top. Uh my grandmother and mother didn't know much about that. They were concerned about, you know, the the, the kids going off the war and all mm-hmm. of that. This was still in the heyday of the Vietnam War. Right. And, um, uh, but they learned very quickly that this was an opportunity that is, you know, accorded to very few people in our nation. And so mm-hmm. how could I say no when it's all said and done? So I went to West Point, and I did well there. I graduated in the top quarter of my class. Uh, What did you uh, study there? uh, Everybody at that time was required uh, to study engineering. And so you could, everybody was going to end up with a general engineering degree Mm -hmm. with an area of emphasis. Mine was aerospace and mechanical engineering. And so so I studied um, those things, and they have, of course, paid off. In the, in the life that I've been able to live uh, so far, the um, the experience there was was uh, enormously rewarding. It's one of those kind of experiences that you look back on with great pride and glad you did it. But it's also the kind of experience that, while it is ongoing, you wish you were not there because it, it is. It sounds exhausting. Yeah, it's very exhausting. It's um, it's um, it's it's quite uh, challenging mm-hmm. yeah, physically, mentally. Um, everything about you is tested and, uh, you are sort of put through, you know, put through some rigor that, uh, you won't see in, in most other places. You wish your friend hadn't stood up and said he was going to the Naval Academy <laughs> at that point. <laughs> you're probably thinking I could have done, I could well, have gone to local college. You well, know? <laughs> irony of ironies. Um, you know, today there is a prisoner exchange at the Army Navy game. Uh, where, <laughs> where Navy uh, midshipmen are exchanged for Army cadets at halftime and all of that. Well, my class was the first that started that oh, yeah? that uh, that thing. So I was chosen actually to go represent West Point at the Naval Academy of all of all places. Uh, six of us uh, went there, and um, what was it, it like? I mean, it was very challenging. <laughs> um, the um, the academic rigor uh, was. Uh, Well, I I shouldn't say it was more rigorous, but it was from my perspective because they placed us in advanced classes at the Naval Academy, Mm -hmm. where at West Point I was placed in regular classes. And and so it was quite the challenge. Um, I do recall uh, that we did not um, have, for example, final exams that quarter because we had to leave since... The Navy guys were starting to get a little bit out of out of hand. Uh, they wanted to uh, celebrate early uh, the oncoming victory over the Army team and all of that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they were beginning to harass us a little bit, although we were quite welcome at Navy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I remember that having to leave early, we had to do oral exams rather than the written exams, for example, in, in physics. And um, I was... Uh, Always a big Star Trek fan, fan, and I, I don't know whether the professors knew that, but the first question was, "How do the engines on the Starship Enterprise work?" <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I uh, aced I got that. It. I yeah. aced that quite I'm well. All over and, that. Yeah. So anyway, it was it was a great experience. Mm-hmm. Um, we had the exchange and all of that, but uh, uh, West Point was good. Uh, when I finished, I left there and went. Uh, to the Army as an air defense artillery officer. And all that means is that uh, I was trained on equipment and in uh, tactics and strategies of how to shoot down aircraft and try to control the airspace over the battlefield. Oh, wow. Timely. Yeah. 
Very timely. Yeah. 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 And Hmm. and so my branch uh, contained both gun systems and missiles. Mm -hmm. And so uh, our job was to um, defeat, at that time, the Air Force of the Soviet Union. They were our primary enemy. And um, secondary was concerns about China. Imagine that. Mm -hmm. Look where we are today. I know. Things uh, come around, don't they? Yeah, they do. And so... You never had to serve, though, in active combat. You missed that... I miss, uh, yeah, the, uh, I think the last West Point graduates that went to Vietnam with the class of 75 and Mm -hmm. I was 77. Mm -hmm. So they had graduated two years ahead of me. Um, The, um, at that time, the Soviet Union had 50,000 tanks on the border of what we then call the Iron Curtain. And uh, we had 5,000. So it was an arduous task to think about. But even then, we felt that uh, we were... Uh, superior in tactics and equipment uh, mm-hmm. to the rusting sort of um, older, uh, less modern, uh, then Soviet right. uh, army, which at its foundation was the Russian army. So you came up, Don, when our real focus was on strength leads to peace. Like That's you correct. have to be strong to keep the peace. That's right. And I'm assuming this has kind of led your career. I mean, to go through what you did, just going through the academy and then learning what you have. I know that you work some after your service, but you have been focused on uh, protecting our, our community and our country. Yeah. I believe very, very strongly in our country. I believe in the Constitution. Uh, and having studied it, it is a very, very unique document. It it, it uh, had pieces of this and pieces of that from other parts of the world. Uh, but when it's all said and done, it is super unique. And uh, the concepts in it, um, at, and the, at the time that they were kind of pulled together and parsed together and then formed a nation out of it, is truly extraordinary. I believe that our nation is exceptional. I take exception to those who, thinks, who think mm-hmm. that it is not. Uh, I've been places around the planet where um, our nation is looked upon with high regard uh, in many different ways. Um, We were, for example, we took a trip to Nepal when I was the U.S. attorney in western Louisiana. And um, our mission was to go over and talk about uh, the American criminal justice system and compare that with the Nepal, the Nepali criminal justice system. And Nepal is a nation of antiquity, antiquity. Buddha walked the land of Nepal 5,000 plus years ago. And here we are, um, you know, 200 year old Mm -hmm. young republic, baby republic um, in the world's eyes, uh, talking to them about things Mm -hmm. that they wanted to know from us because of our success at it. So that was wisdom. That was wisdom, absolutely. And um, I remember talking to the attorney general of Nepal, and I asked him, well, what do you want? me and my team to leave uh, your prosecutors with. And he said, I want you to expand their horizons. Can you imagine that? A baby nation, uh, the United States of America, expanding Mm -hmm. the horizon of Buddha, a land of antiquity. And so I think people sort of lose sight of that when they hear others, particularly government leaders, talk about America is not exceptional or we should ask for forgiveness for our sins committed around the planet, and et cetera. Uh, there's no other nation in history that has liberated more people or tried to help more people than our country, and we should be proud of that. I hope we're still looked at as that leader um, internationally. I am questioning you as a, a person to have two different presidents appoint you in high levels of leadership, first as U.S. attorney, by George W. Bush, and then head of the U.S. Marshals by Donald Trump. Did you know them? Like, how does someone get to this place where you're selected? I didn't know either of them at the time. Um, What an incredible honor. Yeah, and and to do that, there is a machinery, of course, inside the state of Louisiana. So I'm a a son of Louisiana, born from Texas, and when it's all Mm. said and done. And um, uh, so it took uh, the friends that that I created or that I met here in Lafayette as as the place of my roots for my career in both of those jobs when it's all said and done. And I think it all began for me um, when there was a fight on the then 
um, city parish council. You and I were talk, kind of talking yeah. about this off, before. Uh, yeah, yeah. We'll keep all that off the right. tape. <laughs> right. And the uh, uh, there was, but this particular fight involved a seat on the airport commission. Ah. Right. And uh, so the airport commission had um, needed a seat, and they filled it with a member of the community and an African American member of the community. When it came time to vet his credentials, uh, the the press was having a difficult time vetting his credentials. He had, I think, stated that he had graduated from the University of Texas, but they couldn't find evidence of that. And he had this degree and that degree, and they couldn't find evidence of this and that. So um, it fell apart. And so I put my name in the hat, and I became the consensus candidate for both Democrats and Republicans on the then council. He had some diplomas. Uh, that you could show them. Well, I had, yeah, I had some <laughs> some diplomas, as they say. Uh, so I ended up on on this commission. Uh, one of five. Um, there was a an Air Force Academy graduate, uh, a, a combat Navy Navy combat pilot from Vietnam. Um, there was a Marine uh, pilot, and there was on the commission a, on the commission. Wow! And there was a a civilian pilot, uh-huh. uh, Mr. Dugall, on the commission. Yeah. And in myself, a West Point graduate. And so three or f- two or three, four years later, they decided to, they being the council, decided to reorganize the commission and create it uh, and change it from a five-person commission to a seven-person commission. And in the process of doing that, um, um, you know, the commission was fine with it. Um, two more people helped do the work and all of that. Um, the, the, after the discussions began to to, to occur, it became, it dawned on me very, very clearly what was happening and that there was one African-American on this, com- on this commission and only one. One out of five, there would be one out of seven. Mm-hmm. And so, so it changed, yeah. yeah so like- I, I, I took issue with mm-hmm. that. I, I didn't think that this noble city should continue to bow down to the sins of the past, in a sense. And there had been deals made in back rooms for that one position. I respect that. I understand that uh, the African-American community needed to make a deal in order to get at least one person on mm-hmm. that commission, but I thought it was wrong to limit um, the, the participation to one person alone, one African-American alone. So I made it known that I thought that was wrong, and I stated um, in fairly uncertain terms fairly certain terms, I guess I should say, that um, um, I, I just described who was on the commission before. I said, well, I'm a West Point graduate, and I'm, you know, I, I've got at least an equal education, if not better, than anyone else on that commission. I, I don't need the assistance. Why don't you put two of us on that commission, two African-Americans on the airport commission? And you weren't really appointed, I hope, just because you were African-American. Yes, I was, as it turns out. Yes, that was that, that. That came home to me okay. in a big way, and when it did, I recognized that um, uh, it was something that uh, my parents, uh, my grandparents, um, uh, my teachers, and in high school, uh, my teachers at West Point, the folks I served with in the military, none of those uh, would support uh, that arrangement, and so I couldn't support it. Couldn't continue to condone it. And so I broke from the ranks and said, "I, you know, put me in one of the other yeah. seven, the other six seats, and Thank and put another one of my yeah. African American brothers in another mm-hmm. or sisters in in the other seat, and and we'll go on down the road." But uh, at that time, the parish refused that, both Republicans and Democrats, and uh, there were there had been a deal made, and the deal was done. And so, uh, what I think was surprising. Uh, to them was that the citizens in this community didn't condone it uh, at all, and that the citizens in this community were members of the 21st century. And um, and so um, I resigned from that commission and ended up acquiring a, a whole slew of uh, new friends of all stripes in, in our community. And it was those stripes that led, I think, to a, a young Texas boy uh, becoming the U.S. attorney in western Louisiana in less than a decade of living here in this community. Yeah. I love this story. 
Thank you for telling us that. What had brought you here originally? How did you end up in Lafayette? Um, the, the there was a a problem in the Gulf of Mexico, or as I framed it, south of I-10 for a little oil company called Conoco. Mm-hmm. At the you were time. an engineer with Conoco. <laughs> I was an engineer with Conoco uh, while I went to law school, um, and um, in fact, I left the military and joined Conoco in Lake Charles. And so I served Conoco in the Lake Charles refinery for a couple of years before I was shipped off to Houston to basically write speeches and carry bags and and um, and learn more about Conoco uh, at, a, at a much higher level. And so um, later on, it became clear to me that I needed a an advanced degree, um, that the bachelor's degree in engineering was okay, uh, came from a good school and all of that, but I needed to know more about how to run a business and how to do this and that and the other. So I had two choices, law and or MBA. I, as I sometimes tell people, I made the mistake of choosing law, uh, but of course, law has led to the U.S. attorney's job and the U.S. marshal's yeah, job. Jones and Jones Walker. Yeah. And Jones Walker, when it's all said and done. Uh, but uh, if I had chosen MBA, I would be retired with a big sailboat somewhere in the Caribbean. <laughs> Isn't that a shame? Yeah. You're working by the hour now. Huh? <laughs> right. Now I work by the hour. Um, uh, but anyway, I chose law, and I, I, I so loved law school. Uh, yeah. uh, the concepts and the thought path, the logic, the reasoning, the history, um, the, the whole foundation of our nation is the rule of law. And so I mm-hmm. so loved law that I decided to practice law, and Conoco let me do that. And so they, they supported you going they supported to school? me going to school. Uh, that was in Houston. Yes, in Houston. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, had, uh, I still had to do my job. I mm-hmm. had a full-time job. You went at night? Uh, and I went at night oh uh, to South Texas oh, College wow. of Law. Engineer that, by day. Engineer by day. Student law student night. by night. Yeah. That's right. And, and uh, law student every other second mm. of the day because... As they say, used to say on year. right, God. as they say on the used to say on the paper chase, the law is a jealous mistress, yeah. and she will demand all of your time. And so, I spent uh, an enormous amount of time studying, in addition to traveling around the country, uh, buying and selling natural gas as an engineer for for then Dupont because mm-hmm. Dupont owned Conoco. So I was a Conoco employee, and we were, you know, basically in the service of uh, Dupont at that time. And your school, Don. I've read about this. It's one of the top in the country, but they're set up for people. Like me. Yeah, Yeah. like you, that are high achieving, but also want to get an advanced degree. But that's tough. It's recognized by some as the Harvard of the South. I hate Mm -hmm. to even put the name Harvard next to it, to be honest with you, Uh, uh, because I think it's a great school, and it's a great advocacy school. And... um, and so uh, it's still there, still doing very mm-hmm. well, but it, it served people like me, people looking for that advanced degree, but had a job and a career that ongoing and, and needed to continue that while they tried to get a law degree or an MBA or something mm-hmm. else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, gosh, I, I want to get into your service. Um, before we do, though, I'd like to pause mm-hmm. during every show. We listened back at a a prior interview that we did on Discover Lafayette, and this one is with Kyle Bacon, who is your managing partner in the Lafayette office of Jones Walker. Mm -hmm. And when I interviewed Kyle, it turned out that he's a big advocate for the continued growth and diversity of offerings in downtown Lafayette um, as it's being revitalized as we speak. And so for people interested, you can hear Kyle Bacon's interview at discoverlafayette.net. This moment is made possible by FACET, which offers career transition services and executive coaching. They've done so for 40 years. FACET's goals are to provide consistent, exceptional value by utilizing a holistic, tailored, and results-based approach to support candidates on their career journey. You can visit facetgroup.com for more information. We people your success. And now the moment. One sense you could say it's the maybe it's the front porch of, mm-hmm. of our community. Mm-hmm. It's the place everybody knows from all different parts of, of Lafayette. Everybody knows downtown. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the the cultural mix that you see here is is a is sort of a I think a great reflection of our community. And it, it showcased no better than during Festival International. Right. Where folks from all over our community 
absolutely. But even all over the world come and converge mm-hmm. downtown. And it's a, I think the festival is a great, uh, a great symbol of what downtown is all about. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, the, it's the center of our community. It's a place where everybody is welcome, all, all walks of life, all parts of our community, and everyone feels comfortable. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a good, it's, it's important to our community that we have a place like that where we can all come together and feel Welcome back to Discover Lafayette with Don Washington, partner in the Jones Walker Law Firm and past uh, head of the U.S. Marshal Service nationally, as well as our um, U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Louisiana. So, Don, we've talked about your education and your experiences, but you were appointed by these two presidents. Can you talk about how you have felt through this journey as we talk about the service you've done, this probably wasn't planned out. I mean, did it just unfold? It just unfolded. Uh, it's unfolded, but like everything else, you have to be prepared for what mm-hmm. unfolds. And so when I talk to kids, you know, I've always encouraged them to get prepared for the future because you never know what might unfold. Uh, I was appointed as the U.S. attorney and took the oath of office one week after 9-11, mm-hmm. so one week after the towers fell in New York. And I think at that time it was a good thing. that I saw that the, the, the then attorney general, uh, Ashcroft, um, was making every effort to ensure that the people who got appointed to these positions understood the gravity of the moment. Uh, we had been appointed uh, or I should say nominated sometime back uh, before 9-11. Uh, I think my nomination may have occurred a month or two earlier. Uh, but when those towers fell, there was a great urgency in the U.S. attorney community and in, in the Department of Justice uh, to have people raise their right hands and get into office so that we could start attacking the problem in front of us, which was to figure out what kind of landscape of terrorist, uh, what kind of uh, numbers, uh, where they were, uh, what they were doing, uh, where they existed inside the United States as the military took off overseas. And so we spent the next uh, couple of years rooting out um, these little enclaves uh, of plotters around the country, including here in the parish of Lafayette. Really? Yeah. People all over. They were all over the country. There were there were investigations or of, and suspicions of, uh, of folks who either uh, were plotting uh, something to occur in the country or were capable of plotting mm-hmm. something because of their ideologies that were very um, awkward at that time uh, for for us. Um, in our case uh, here. A uh, story I sometimes tell is the story of Wadi El Hajj, one of the three or four very famous graduates from the University of Louisiana Lafayette, or then the University of Southwestern Louisiana. Uh, there is Joe Jamel, you know, who uh, rich, very now very rich lawyer who prosecuted uh, Texaco versus Pinzoil, Pinzoil versus Texaco, and made hundreds of millions of dollars out of it. There was Richard Simmons who, uh, you know, the, the athletic uh, mm-hmm. person who liked to tell people I had exercise and things of that sort. And then there was Wadi El Hajj. And I asked people about Wadi El Hajj, and very few of them know him. Well, he was one of the few uh, folks who actually plotted the bombing of the embassies in, uh, in Kenya and Tanzania. And he has ties? He went to school here, here in Lafayette, yes. Oh, my and, goodness. Um, uh, he... Um, was dispatched. He actually met uh, bin Laden in Afghanistan, and, and bin Laden dispatched him to the Sudan. I think I've gotten that backwards. He met bin Laden in the Sudan, and then bin Laden mm-hmm. moved to Afghanistan, and uh, he became one of one or one of several. I don't know what the numbers are. Personal secretaries of Osama bin Laden, and he was ultimately dispatched into Africa to plot those those embassy bombings. He carried them out and killed a whole bunch of people. And so um, him and his colleagues, and I guess in, I don't know, maybe the second or third or fourth year of my term as U.S. attorney here, we actually uh, prosecuted another uh, person who was, a, who was affiliated with that 
that uh, group that El Hajj was affiliated with, and um, he uh, was determined. He eventually lied to the FBI. We put him in prison for four years and then excluded him from the United States. But El Hajj, by that time, was already in prison. He was prosecuted. Uh, if I recall correctly, by prosecutors in the Southern District of New York mm-hmm. and sent off to a little place we call Supermatch, Supermax, which is where we have uh, uh, El Chapo and others oh uh, now up in, up in Colorado. So when you were working to oversee, like, you know, civil and criminal law violations, you also were working nationally and internationally on behalf of the U.S. government, as U.S. attorney. I didn't realize that. A U.S. attorney has jurisdiction within the geography that he operates. But if a crime, um, (laughs) typically, particularly terrorism crimes, spread their tentacles around uh, lots of geography. Mm -hmm. So if you can determine that you were part of that geography, then you can move forward and investigate and and move, you know, to take care of those kinds of cases. Uh, again, El Hodge was from here, but by the time we went to school here, I shouldn't say he was from here, he went to school here, moved out to Arizona, and then ended up uh, going overseas and back and affiliating himself with with uh, Osama bin Laden. And then the the, the buildings, uh, the World Trade Center was attacked in New York yeah. a couple of times before they were able to mm-hmm. actually knock them down. And as a part of those investigations, El Hajj was tied in to the bombings in embassy in Tanzania. They they turned out and determined that Tanzanite had actually been used by by um, Al Qaeda to finance some of its operations around the world. Interestingly, I yeah. guess t- tidbit of uh, trivia, I suppose, Tanzanite. or interest interest um, in the case that we investigated here, involving another another person. Um, there was a Louisiana notarial, notarial form uh, that had been signed that it was found in one of the embassy bombings, one of the embassies in Africa, and that became part of the FBI's evidence uh, wow. against the gentleman that we prosecuted mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. in this case. Uh, and that notarial form was essentially a little contract that was established between El Hodge uh, and this gentleman uh, to market Tanzanite in the United States, and as you I said earlier, really, yeah, we had we had determined that Al Qaeda was using funds, uh, funding, uh, funds received from Tanzanite sales for their uh, operations to fund their operations yeah. around the world. Yeah, I'm thinking back to an interview I did with David Joseph, mm-hmm. a successor of yours that was U.S. Attorney, and he was so he's now a U.S. District Judge. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just gung ho about his job in protecting all of us and really hated white collar crime in particular. Of course he hated criminal (laughs) law. We talked about gang activity and how it's more rampant in North Louisiana than South Louisiana. But as I'm listening to you, I know now you do um, white collar defense. So people that are prosecuted and Mm -hmm. researched, you know, investigated by the U S attorney's office, they also deserve their fair day in court under yeah. our constitution. Mm-hmm. So there's like this, you yes, want to investigate and also right. people deserve defense. They deserve the best yeah. defense they can get. And yeah, if you can speak on that. Absolutely. The As I said earlier, I believe strongly in our constitution mm-hmm. and, um, and, and I was a federal prosecutor, am at heart, I guess, a federal prosecutor, but I'm also a more... Um, uh, an even greater supporter of our Constitution. I served on the board of the Innocence Project in New Orleans, uh, which, as most people know, that's that's a project to look at prosecutions uh, that uh, we believe put an innocent person in prison, and to go get that person out of prison uh, by all means necessary, you know, within the bounds of the law, of course. And um, and so I, I strongly believe in. Uh, the, presumption, the presumption of innocence, and I strongly believe that a prosecutor has to prove his case because the, the thing at stake is our most valuable possession while we are alive, and that's our liberty. Mm-hmm. 
And, and so, I mean, what is life without liberty? And you have some people today in Ukraine kind of living that yeah. that story as, as we speak. In other Saudi Arabia. That's so right. Just, many, many people just Many other countries. Death. That's right. Many other weekend. countries. Yeah. yeah. Where life... There's uh, no meaning. You can live as long as you live under the thumb of an authoritarian, mm-hmm. authoritarian ruler, uh, but life without liberty is, is meaningless. And so... And that's why we have to be a little careful when we start thinking about the government taking care of us relative to uh, our safety and things of that sort. Public safety is uh, obviously a number one priority to the government, but citizens just cannot let safety uh, rule over liberty uh, in, in a big, big mm-hmm. way. In a little way, yes, but in a big way, no. Mm-hmm. And so uh, back to the question Essentially, how can I defend those? Well, I didn't ask that. I just wanted you to explain, you know, both sides yeah, of it. Yeah, I, I understand. And so, uh, uh, no, I, I have, uh, it's been an honor uh, yeah. to, to defend um, those who are charged with crimes, just as, just as it was an honor to prosecute those who are charged with crimes. Uh, I do believe that... Um, that a federal prosecutor or a prosecutor is a very, very noble profession. But I also believe that being a criminal defense lawyer is equally noble because without one, the other one goes gets just gets way, way askew, way outside the Constitution. And so uh, the check on the government is is uh, our number one priority. And when I was the U.S. attorney, the thing that I one of the things that I always insisted upon was that we check ourselves as well. Yeah, we, we the government, you know, cannot allow ourselves to become the the folks mm-hmm. who ultimately take liberty away because we get too zealous in the way we look at things and things of that sort. Right. So you served until 2010. I know you mm-hmm. had a few years back in private practice. Yes. And then in 2019 to... Um, uh, twenty what was it? Twenty twenty one. You served as head of the U.S. Marshals. Absolutely. And that was more on the law enforcement side, I guess, as Absolutely. far as the if you can explain what a U.S. Marshal is yeah, and yeah. what you did. Yeah, I am super proud of uh, service with the United States Marshal Service. Uh, I was fortunate enough to. Um, I guess have a couple things working for me. One, a strong desire to re-enter federal service and to serve our nation. Uh, And two, knowing someone who could help me do that. (laughs) And the person that I knew at the time was one Rod Rosenstein, who uh, was the deputy attorney general uh, who I had served with as U.S. attorney uh, back in the George W. Bush days and all of that. And so uh, Rod uh, became the the DAG, as as they call the Deputy Attorney General inside the Department of Justice. Uh, at that time, uh, Sessions was the AG, and so we had some discussions, and um, they made an offer of a particular position, um, which um, was good, uh, um, but I, you know, it didn't just completely light my fire and. In any event, Rod finally called, called me back uh, one day and said a couple of things. First of all, he says, Don, you didn't call me back, which was kind of disrespectful. I probably should have called him back. But you weren't interested. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I was, I was still contemplating it because it, it, the, the job that was offered was a high position inside the Department of Justice, no doubt about it. And it's an honorable position. He said, well, since you didn't call me back, how about the U.S. Marshals? And I said, well, you know, now we're talking. <laughs> and um, so um, I, w- I would say the rest is history, but there's, there's one hell of a story there. Uh, the United States Marshal Service um, is the nation's oldest uh, federal law enforcement agency. It has been with the nation as the nation from the nation's beginning, from 1789. Mm-hmm. When U.S. attorneys and U.S. judges uh, were created, uh, so were the U.S. marshals. So there were the original 13, just like we had the original 13 colonies, right. Right. Had the original 13 districts and 13 U.S. marshals. Um, they have been presidentially appointed since that time. Even Wyatt Earp? He, well, no, Wyatt Earp was, was not. Was he not? He, he, was a, he was a deputy U.S. Marshal, but he was not the U.S. Marshal. Yeah, your hero. Well, there are other heroes, well, too. You. I can talk about, yeah. uh, for example, Bass Reeves, 
Um, he is, he's one of the agency's uh, heroes. He is an African-American uh, deputy U.S. Marshal, 1875, uh, when, when he uh, took, the oath, took uh-huh. the oath of office and became a deputy U.S. Marshal in Western Arkansas. Okay. And his charge was to help um, U.S. District Judge Isaac Parker, a.k.a. the Hanging Judge, oh. Uh, to uh, bring order uh, to the Oklahoma Territory the at the time. The good old days, huh? <laughs> This was before Oklahoma became a state. Mm-hmm. And so he would cross, he, Bass Reeves, would cross the river on orders of the judge and others to go and find somebody and bring them back. And if you can imagine that, you no, know, I'm, horseback and you've got a wagon full of biscuits and bacon, I guess is what they, what they no did back in those days. And no ways or, you know, maps to <laughs> yeah, guide yeah. you. No, I mean, no, no GPS, no yeah. GPS. <laughs> right. Yeah, and uh, none of that stuff. And, and so he would go off into the wilderness, basically, and uh-huh. uh, he would uh, assume all kinds of uh, disguises. He was an expert horseman and an expert uh, 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 with a firearm, rifle, and pistol. Uh, and he also spoke uh, an Indian dialect or two and all of that. Uh, but this was 1875. After, yeah. So this is 10 years after the end of the Civil War mm-hmm. and uh, many years before our country kind of re-erupted into uh, the civil rights uh, issue. So, so he's one of the agency's uh, heroes, along with several others of that, of that day, that brought order uh, to mm-hmm. the then Oklahoma Territory. And... Um, uh, Bass was, at uh, by some accounts, the model for the the fictional Lone Ranger because he would oh. go out by himself, uh, and he often had an Indian scout with him and things of that sort to help him find these people. Um, but anyway, he uh, uh, there's a series called Watchmen that was played a couple of years back, and his he's sort of the foundation for for that series, and mm-hmm. it is I think his grand daughter or great-granddaughter, I, I don't know the lineage exactly, who becomes the, the star in, in, in that series. Cool. Yeah, it's really super cool. But, but uh, Bad Masterson and Wyatt Earp yeah. and Virgil Earp, it was actually Virgil who was the the U.S. Marshal, the, the real uh, uh, well, the real deputy U.S. Marshal, and yeah. and Wyatt. I'm, I'm not. I'm just. I'm, I'm not going to disparage Wyatt. I love Wyatt Earp. Uh, Wyatt Earp's desk is in U.S. Marshal headquarters. I've signed today. I've signed um, every time we um, swear in a U.S. Marshal after after appointment uh-huh. or by the president and of course confirmation desk? they go to the desk today. Oh man, today. what a picture opportunity! Yeah, huh? and sign on the white yeah. herb desk uh, their credentials that they'll carry uh, for the rest of their lives. What does a, a current day U.S. Marshal do? Yeah, you know, since yeah. we've moved on from those days, but they still have to be like. Yeah, the you know pretty brave, yeah. and they put themselves out there. So of all the things that they used to do, most of those things are a lot of I should say a lot of those things are now done by other agencies. You know, the FBI came along I think in the 1920s. Uh, there's ATF and DEA. They've come along since then as well. Even the Department of Justice has grown uh, from the original appointment of the Attorney General uh, to to what it is today, which is a huge, uh, huge uh, law firm and very successful law firm. Um, uh, but so today what the marshals do is they have the uh, primary responsibility for protecting Article Three of our Constitution, which is the, the judiciary. So marshals protect an entire branch of government, and uh, they are responsible for ensuring that judges and those other persons who participate in the judiciary they uh, do so without intimidation and that our judicial process functions correctly and that it continues uh, to dispense justice in the way that justice with due process is dispensed in our country. And my view and the view of some others is that unless we get that right, we won't get liberty right. Mm-hmm. And so the marshals become a, a continue to be, be a key cog in the whole rule of law experiment in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, so that's the overarching function. Now, what do they specifically do? They protect courts. Uh, they also go out and um, uh, arrest fugitives. I was watching Tommy Lee Jones this weekend. Oh, on, uh, what, <laughs> what were you watching? This one, I'd walked into one of my relatives in Houston's house, and he was watching, I think it was called, um, it wasn't The Fugitive, it was something else. 
It was the one where uh, uh, Wesley Snipes had escaped uh, from an a, a from Con Air, mm-hmm. you know, and so the marshals also to this day also operate a large airline to move. Um, a quarter of a million, a million, quarter of a million prisoners around the country oh, every, wow. every year, uh, from uh, prisons to courts and mm-hmm. et cetera. And the, the real number is about a million total movements of prisoners, whether it's by um, uh, vehicle to by air, mm-hmm. uh, from jail cells uh, back to courts. All uh, federal. Uh, all federal prisoners. Right. Yeah. Every year. And that's a lot of uh, people. Yeah, that's a lot of movement. And so Wesley Snipes was just one, and Tommy Lee yep. Jones was one. Was well, a he dep- can handle deputy. the whole thing, yeah, they right? Can, yeah, they can deal with all of it. Uh, it only takes one deputy U.S. Marshal to deal with all that <laughs> stuff. And so anyway, um, they um, uh, so we, we the marshals uh, arrest about 100,000 of the most violent fugitives uh, in the country. Uh, every year, it's about three hundred a day to three hundred and fifty a day. Is it mainly drug? Uh, uh, no, these no? are uh, murderers, uh, drugs. Uh, well, no, no. Uh, about uh, twenty-five thousand of them are federal prisoners. The other seventy thousand or more are state okay. warrants. State warrants. So marshals have the jurisdiction to go and work with local communities. So when we have a violent uh, crime problem, for example, in New Orleans or, mm-hmm. or Chicago or New York or wherever, uh, it's, it's uh, very likely that the marshals are in the leading edge of, of whatever the operation is that's afoot. And, 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 and that's because of the, the overarching belief that the people who commit the most crimes in the communities already have a criminal record and already had and may well have an outstanding warrant for their arrest. Mm-hmm. So in comes the marshals and the local officers on the various, like Chicago Police Department, New Orleans Police Department, who who work with the marshals to go and find these people and take them back to justice. The tragedy of it all is that some of the judicial systems um, uh, just puke them back out into the communities. I shouldn't use that word probably on but this, they can this get kind out. of show. Yeah, yeah and, and I don't have a problem with that if, if you know, it's a true function of the rule of law. But if it's sort of an expedient thing where someone has the misbegotten belief that we can cure uh, this uh, killer uh, by showing him a, a little more kindness, then they uh, probably missed the point. And so... So in any event, event, uh, about 100,000 of those every year. Uh, We also run the Witness Security Program. This is another movie, uh, Vanessa Williams and Arnold Schwarzenegger, (laughs) as an example. That's Uh, a real thing? Yeah, it's a real thing. I thought that was just in the movies. Oh, really? No, no. There is a Witness Security Division in the United States Marshal Service. We've had 19,000 witnesses since the division was created. None of them have been... um, uh, harmed, uh, killed, as long as they abided by the guidelines of the, uh, of the program. Um, they changed so, their names and all that? Absolutely. Um, there is they a, get a new social, like they change everything? About- complete new identity. Uh, they could be some of your neighbors. Let's see. The really? Over there with the, uh, like le- they're given a new <laughs> career? Like they're middle-aged? Like uh, really, that really happens? They, they have to help, they have to work with the marshals to reestablish themselves uh-huh. in a community that is in a geography that's outside of the area where they operated as criminals or where they Gosh. were witnesses and now the criminals want to come and kill them. Social and, media must have changed a lot of this, well, right? With fa- face recognition. Interesting that you that you bring that up. Um, social media is one of the problems of the witness security mm-hmm. program. If you have a 15-year-old child, I mean, as an example. I mean, it identifies your face. Like yeah. Just, yeah. I guess they can change that, too. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they get into all that, yeah, like they do the, in the movies. The, the, they get a new identity. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the social media part I was, I was uh, bringing up was the teenagers who need mm-hmm. to be on Facebook. And, I mean, imagine if you're a member of an organized crime group and you've testified against some guy and you're gonna get you're gonna die if you ever get discovered. And your kid. And, yeah. your, and your kid wants to play on Facebook. You your know. dad on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> right. So so there's a lot of work that's put into mm-hmm. um, um and, and training that's put into that, but it, it, it's a very, very serious, very Darn. serious operation. This is fascinating. Yeah, you really we, work with people 
nationally in all kinds of things that yeah, most of us don't even know the first thing about. The marshals have other other things going on. For example, um, <laughs> I was talking the other day, we, we seized a vessel uh, in uh, Beirut, Lebanon, uh, called the Queen Anne, and uh, because it belonged to someone who had been indicted, uh, who was uh, on the lam, and uh, but uh, the U.S. attorney in this, it wasn't in Louisiana, in another state, uh, had acquired the correct process for us to go do that, but mm-hmm. it's up to us to figure out how to do that. And so... Here's Lebanon right now, hyperinflation. People are doing all kinds of things that are not exactly so kosher. Will the, will the local police or the local military cooperate or not? Do we have to do this in a surreptitious way, or can it be open and obvious? Mm-hmm. With the, do you need to talk to the folks in the embassy? Will they be helpful or not helpful? Do you need to carry firearms, weapons, ammunition, et cetera? Yeah, or or wrenches <laughs> in order to make the thing work right, and stuff like that. Right. So. All kinds of things like that. Uh-huh. We got into a, a little project not long ago where we we seized uh, some um, cryptocurrency, and um, you know how do you, how does that work in the world nowadays? If you see some cryptocurrency, mm-hmm. can you use it? Uh, does it have value, and can it be sold right. or or exchanged for American dollars, which is what the U.S. Treasury really likes to get back? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, they know how to deal with that. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And um, and many other things like that. Um, the uh, the agency also uh, is responsible for maintaining custody of pretrial detainees in the federal system. So on any given in any given year, the agency has somewhere between call it fifty five and seventy thousand uh, pretrial uh, detainees. We call them prisoners that are housed in somewhere between 700 and 1,000 jails across the United States. And each one of those has to be brought to and fro court uh, for their processes until that process has either yielded a not guilty verdict or a guilty plea or a guilty verdict and have to be taken off to prison. Jeffrey Epstein, as an example, was one of our prisoners. Uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, uh, his... uh, Girlfriend is currently one of our prisoners. Um, El uh, El Chapo was one of our prisoners. Uh, I mean, the the marshals are in the middle of all of those kinds of things. And when they are prisoners, they have to um, abide by certain requirements. But we also, uh, the agency is also responsible for... Um, for all of the things that you have to do to keep the prisoner safe. So El Chapo, as an example, didn't have, you know, he had a lot of friends, he had a lot of enemies. Mm -hmm. And so... Target. Friends want to have him escape and enemies want to harm him. And we have to keep that from happening. So there were several ruses that were undertaken Uh in order to make sure that that would happen for El Chapo. You must have just been hitting the tip of the iceberg and really getting your feet wet in two years. I mean, this is, you need a full team of lawyers just to make sure... Now, these I'm sure are, you're complying with yeah. rights of prisoners and also protecting the Constitution. Well, the agency also has its own general counsel's office with right. lawyers as well, its own little law firm. Yeah. Um, what but a over the last job. Uh, over the last two years, the real the real issue is what everybody has seen in our country, and that's been the civil disturbance and the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. Marshals were uh, we were the head of the tip of the spear in the pandemic. Uh, we set up quarantine sites to bring people back from Wuhan, China. Uh, so uh, we were there before anybody else was, with along with CDC and HHS, uh, as we were learning about the virus. And on the other end of that whole process, marshals were there uh, to guard the vaccine uh, and, and were a part of Operation Warp Speed uh, to move the vaccine from from point to point to point as it was being manufactured and then packaged and then handed off uh, to a carrier such as UPS or FedEx. And so we were the entity that actually guarded those things. We had one or two little issues around the country, but for the most part, that that operation went fairly safely. So I wasn't even thinking about that. Your service was right 
oh, yeah. during the pandemic? Were your yeah. people afraid of going to Wuhan? I mean, it was this... They didn't go to Wuhan. They We set up uh, uh, quarantine sites in the United States as they came back. So, came back. so when they came back, when State Department employees came back, they had to land... At an, air, at an Air Force base. And we set up quarantine sites at Air Force. I think it was four Air Force bases originally. I think we expanded to five, maybe six before it was all work. said and done. Yeah. yeah, because we didn't know Nobody what it was knew. all about. There was yeah. no vaccine. There was just what we had seen in China. China was not being truthful about its losses um, at the time. And so, uh, so you know what, what happened for the vaccine. And then George Floyd happened um, in uh, the vaccine, pardon me, not the vaccine, the pandemic uh, was in January. Mm-hmm. For us, it was December, January mm-hmm. uh, of 2020, December 19, January 2020, and, and then forward. And then in May of 2020, George Floyd was killed uh, in Minneapolis. And um, from that point forward, the BLM movement arose and civil unrest occurred, and our responsibility was to protect uh, primarily federal courthouses and other federal interests in the United States. Um, Portland became the centerpiece of that, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, of those um, um, disturbances, and um, and marshals were uh, in the middle of uh, of that from the standpoint of the courthouse that was under attack for about a hundred nights in Portland. And the so we had deputy U.S. marshals dispatched from around the country, but primarily from our little uh, secret up here, which is the um, Special Operations Division, which is headquartered in Pineville, Louisiana. Really? <laughs> of all places, yes. Are you talking about U.S.? Like... It- for the whole country? Yes. <laughs> Pineville. Yeah. Pineville, right. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to find it, you know. Yeah, and um, <laughs> uh, but uh, nice little facility up there, mm-hmm. and um, we we train um, um, special operators up there, and they are all terrain, all weather, all capability around the planet uh, type guys, mm-hmm. and so uh, we sent them. Uh, Contingents of them to Portland, um, St. Louis, Seattle, uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, Minneapolis, mm-hmm. and other parts where where we were having unrest in Washington D.C. I guess I shouldn't shouldn't I leave. I was learning about that. Yeah, January. <laughs> shouldn't leave out. Yeah, 2021. Uh, well, not only not only January 6 of 2021, but also uh, Lafayette Park as an example, mm-hmm. uh, when the White House was under assault by BLM and other other organizations as, um, as a, um, aftermath of the George Floyd situation. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, um, as we're kind of winding this down, you know, your service has coincided with, you know, 9-11 and then a lot of social unrest. I wonder if it's your thoughts on what's happened in America. Is it, is it just time for us to like, are we, are we just balancing ourselves, like the rights of individuals and frustration of people? Do you, I guess the pandemic made all this worse, where people were just pent up and yeah, and then they had too much time almost to be focused on social media and, and making things maybe worse than they needed to be. But I'm yeah. curious about your thoughts. I, you know, that's a, that's a discussion of uh, all by itself of, of great length and you know, I was thinking about leadership um, this morning as I was preparing for this, and and I think that um, we Americans have to be very careful in the leaders that we select because we listen to the words that come out of their mouths. Those words turn into ideas, and those ideas turn into policies, and those policies turn into actions that lead to poor schools or good schools. Um, lead to, uh, you know, good thoughts about us in our country or bad thoughts about us in our country. And that leads to whether we rely on feelings or facts. And I think that our country uh, has um, uh, begun to, lie, to, to, to rely a lot on feelings rather than facts. Mm-hmm. 
and that facts sometimes are just inconveniences that get in the way of of uh, of things. The way and, that we want to think to begin, like we right. we know what's right, and then the facts can get in the way. That's right, and I feel like that's the way it ought to be, and I feel like for me that's what I want, and and things of that sort. So I think that. Um, um, better leaders, uh, leaders who are not just intelligent, but also energetic, brave, and courageous. Because I, I think that the leaders we have today, many of them uh, take two plus two, which as a fact equals four, and, but they turn it into, well, maybe it's 1.5 up to about 7.5. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and the people who are listening to them, though, uh, don't always think very critically about what they just heard. Ask yourself, was that true? Is that really true? Am, am I really seeing people being shot and killed in the streets every day? Or is that just something that some leader said to me to evoke a response, an emotional response from me that'll cause me to do some things that will benefit the current agenda. Yeah, I think that uh, Americans have to focus upon uh, the things that made our country great uh, from the beginning and uh, that we have modified over time because we were not sinless from the beginning. Uh, the modifications have been pretty, pretty consistent, though, uh, consistent toward uh, trying to stress individual responsibility while helping those who need help. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we have 65% of the people in the country who need help, right? It means that 65% of us ought to be pretty much uh, ingrained in individual responsibility and willing to help the rest to achieve that goal. Uh, that, things, that also means that we need to have uh, a great deal of respect for what we call the rule of law, as long as the rule of law is embedded with uh, or grounded in what we call due process, which means that we have to have a a mechanism for a hearing and um, a way to be heard and not by authoritarian rule. And so we have to be careful that we don't let uh, the three branches of government all get together and all start singing the same song. I think it's good for the three branches of government to have respect for each other, but to also be at odds with each other just to make sure that I, people like me, and that you remain free. Uh, because if if they ever get together, my view, if they ever get together, uh, the nature of what we see in Europe right now could easily be the nature of what could be in America. And so, so I, I think we just have to be careful about the leaders that we elect because that all ultimately turns into, as I said earlier, uh, from ideas and, and turns into actions mm-hmm. later on down the road. So. Yeah, that's beautiful, Don. And as we all watch the news, you know, and seeing the leader of that Ukraine elected, never knowing that he would yeah. actually be a brave, yeah. right, uh, intelligent leader, right, willing to put his life on the line for freedom. Yeah, yeah. I think we're very lucky to have that here, and. I think your words um, bode well for our future, whether we're Democrat or Republican. Absolutely. Our country is here for us. I think we we should respect it. We need parties, um, Mm -hmm. but we also need people who, you know, I I have uh, every respect for feelings. I do. I love to feel good. You know, I don't like feeling bad. I love to feel good, but I also recognize that we have to, look at what's in front of us and have an appreciation of what is really happening rather than what someone is trying to paint to be happening right. in front of us. Right. I want to thank you for your time today. And, you know, we didn't really get into your work at Jones Walker, but I think anybody that's interested can go to Jones Walker's website. You specialize in corporate compliance and white-collar defense. So you handle I do, some I do, intellectual uh, types of work. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I, I'm a litigator mm-hmm. and, and I'm a problem solver. Uh, I want wor- you on my side. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I've, I've, all, I've worked with companies in the past. You know, I was in-house counsel for Conoco for a number of years. And so I have people solve problems, hopefully before litigation. Mm-hmm. And so I provide counsel and advice as, as need be. Uh, but when, when it comes time to litigate a case, I, I'm also, I hope, very capable yeah. <laughs> at doing that. I, I, uh, one more thing before we sure. break it off. Um, 
the um, uh, for uh, any kids that may be listening, and I know that maybe not a lot of kids are listening, but everybody's a kid at heart. Uh, I just just encourage us to remember um, sort of the parable of of red clay, red clay, and there are many people who have no idea what red clay is. But before we had asphalt on roads, we had dirt roads, and some of those roads were 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 uh, clay. And if you were ever driving on a in a wet clay road, you understand how slippery it could be. You could end up in the ditch in a heartbeat. So the, this, this not parable, uh, but this story of red clay sort of resonates with me that life is like traveling down a road of red clay. And it's your job as a person, as a human, as an American to figure out how to navigate that. And so you grow up, you become a man or a woman, and you dedicate yourself to doing whatever you can do that's right uh, for not only yourself, but for your community and for your country. Well said. Don Washington, thank you for every moment of this podcast. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your service. And I'm glad that you chose Lafayette as your home base. Thank we, you for being with us We'll talk us about today. that next time, but I, yeah. I, I love it here. Love and the you people. must like the food and the people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Just love it. I want to thank Jones Walker, too, for encouraging us um, to interview you and for supporting the work of Discover Lafayette. I'd like to thank our listeners for your loyal support and our ongoing sponsors, Auctioner, Lafayette General, Home Bank, Facet Group, and Raider, and in particular, Jason Sikora, who mixes our tape and makes it sound professional. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do. You can get Discover Lafayette wherever you get your podcast. On behalf of Discover Lafayette, This is Jan Swift.